and there he is. Look at that. Speak of the devil. General Ryan, good morning. Let's see if he can hear us. General Ryan. You can hear us. Oh, sorry. I had it on mute. I haven't done this for a while. Good morning. How are you all? We're great. Uh, we wanted Farewell. to share. We wanted to share. First of all, welcome and thanks for coming back. Uh, we read you uh, constantly. I can't wait for your posts. And it's uh, if you weren't a general, you could have been a fortune teller, I think. I don't know if you've ever considered that in your retirement. Um, <laughs> because you get it right. I think, uh, well, I try, but uh, if I put out a fortune teller shingle, I'm so sure I'd start getting 99% of things wrong. <laughs> Murphy's Law. No, it's, uh, it's great. And look, uh, pretty much everyone's assessment yourself, General Hodges, a few of us on the space have always felt that uh, this is the way the cookie would crumble. And I suspect um, you're seeing that. I'm wondering where all those, I know John Spencer gets a little upset when a lot of people who who call themselves experts totally, not only did they peg this wrong from the beginning, not only did they overestimate Russia in every capacity, they doubled down on it as Russia was losing, but there were people like yourself who uh, were issuing clarion calls. Um, Here's a dumb question. How does it feel to be vindicated and right? And why are these other people still talking like Russia's got some other 5D chess uh, going on here? Yeah, it's it's, it's hard to know. I mean, uh, I just go back to the old Clairsvich, you know, everything and war is simple, but even the simplest thing is hard. Um, you know, this, this isn't terribly complicated at, at times. This is two societies who are fighting each other. Uh, both have... Lots of resources and people, but one only has only one really has will, and that's the Ukrainians. And only one is under an existential threat, and that gives them uh, the kind of power that Russia does not possess. Uh, it gives them the kind of endurance uh, and creativity and leadership that Russia doesn't uh, possess. And you know that's been a significant asymmetry in this war, and, and continues to be that. Um, you know, I, I I don't have any agendas here other than Ukraine wanting to win. Um, and that's the same as many, many people in this space. But there are people out there that have different agendas to that. Um, and I, I guess it kind of skews uh, what they say in, in public discourse at times. Fair enough. Were you able to hear that uh, last night? Well, we've had the deputy mayor of Kherson City. She was the former acting mayor. You might know her, Helena Luhova. Uh, she came on the space a couple of times. And uh, they needed generators and water. And it looks as though um, we did a fundraiser with a few people offering to match. One in particular, Lou, great guy. Um, and we, we've gotten to 125,000 confirmed and soon to be probably about 175,000. That's just by people sitting in spaces and talking. And I'm not going to lie to you. It's because of people like you who come here to share your knowledge that gives the space credibility and people come for the expert opinions and analysis. So in a way also thank you to you because if it wasn't for such um, worldly, you know, sophisticated. Yeah. Yeah. So that what did you, did I cut off? Yeah. You Slightly. cut off a little bit there. Yeah. Sorry. So, but yeah, no, uh, but, but, but you are praising sophistication. Yeah. Sophisticated people like you is what makes uh, this, this space even more interesting to listen to. So in a way, um, it's a residual of your presence as what as what led to, as what has led to this great fundraising drive, and that those funds are going to be used to buy those generators for Hairson, to buy equipment for the 3018 Brigade, to buy mine. We also just got five uh, mine detectors to a 15th uh, 
regiment who do, do a lot of uh, demining and EOD stuff, um, and who am I forgetting? Veterans Affairs, all over Ukraine, people are benefiting from the good work that the volunteers here do, and and the volunteers in, in finding great people like yourself to share with the world uh, create that that wonderful learning environment. So uh, on that note, I'd like to thank you. Even Lou is here. He's uh, he's the man of the hour. He's really helped out, and I think he wanted to say hi to you. Lou's, Lou's done great things to support it. He doubled the donations to seventy five thousand dollars. So uh, great, great to have you back again. No, it's good to be back. And, uh, you know, one of the defining themes of this war has been citizen participation, you know, whether it's been crowdfunding uh, in, in Ukraine itself, you know, come back alive and, and, and uh, crowdfunders like this or, or foreign ones like yourself, or, you know, not so much crowdfunding, but citizen participation through... Um, uh, use of civilian sensors and, and analytical tools to disseminate information about the war. I, I think it's been a fascinating, um, uh, almost transformation of warfare, of how citizens can participate without actually fighting. It's amazing. And then, Lou, did you want to say hi to the general real quick? And we're going to bash on to some questions. Yes. Hi, General uh, Ryan. It's really an honor to get to talk to you. And uh, yes, Hi, Luke. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I, I've been following you and reading everything that you publish for a while now. And uh, Yehuda is right. You, you've been spot on from the beginning. Uh, and he's also right that it's people like yourself who have come to this space that helped to attract people like myself and, and the rest of the members of this community and, um, and give this space such a you know, such a high profile. Um, and, and I just feel honored to be supporting the Ukrainians in their fight for freedom and justice and democracy, because it's actually all of our fights and they are inspiring us. Uh, I know I can speak for myself, but I'm pretty sure everyone else on this space feels the same way. Uh, they have been inspiring us with the way that they have been caring for their fellow citizens, uh, being innovative and resilient. And all we can do is basically do our little part to help them. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, no worries. I've, I've played a very small role in this whole thing, but um, hopefully what I've done is brought to light what others are doing and um, it's helped um, and, and broken some nice for, for a range of folks like yourself to do the amazing work you do. But, uh, you know, I think we'll all be studying this war uh, well into the future after the Ukrainian victory um, for all these kind of insights and efforts by a bunch of people. Great. Thank you. Uh, Axel, David, you got hands? Uh, we have a couple of questions. Uh, one to start with, if I may. Normally we sign off with that question. The Australian, um, oh, sorry, the Ukrainian ambassador to Australia is supposedly have made a direct request to the Australian government um, to acquire um, F-18s. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to be quite frank with you. I'm, I'm quite ashamed of my own country's uh, pathetic st strategic bystanding on Ukraine. Um, the current government has been very backward, uh, it's really committed nothing during its administration, with the exception of a few drones at the start of this year, 
Um, it's big on thoughts and prayers and selfies and tweets, but there's been no money. There was no money in the recently announced defence budget, zero for the next five years for Ukraine. Um, so it's really uh, befuddling to me how they can take such a passive, pathetic uh, stance on what is the most important war of the 21st century so far. Um, they appear to want to turn Australia into some backward South Pacific tiny island that no one thinks about. Um, and the F-18s are just symptomatic of that. We have these aircraft that are sitting there doing nothing. Um, there aren't a lot of F-16s sitting around doing nothing. Um, and whilst there's talks ongoing, um, <laughs> I'm pretty sick of hearing talks are ongoing uh, when Ukrainians are dying and they're fighting for the existence of their country. So uh, anything you can do from there to get the Canadians to pressure the Australians would be good. But I've got to tell you, um, the Australian government here uh, is uh, standing by watching and doing very little else when it comes to Ukraine at the moment. Well, the cost of maintenance is high, isn't it? Mm. Sorry. Well, maintenance is high for every kind of aircraft, right? Um, it doesn't matter what kind of aircraft Ukraine has. They, they have to have maintenance. Um, it's like tanks, you know, the great excuse is, oh, you can't have Leopards or M1s because of high maintenance. It's like, give me a break. They they had it, They went into this war with a 1,000 main battle tanks. They understand maintenance. They understand different kinds of engines. They understand different optics and ammunition types. And, you know, so these kind of things have been proven throughout the war to be fake reasons to not give them stuff. Every time the Ukrainians have absorbed new equipment, uh, they've come up with a way to maintain it either themselves or through contract arrangements, particularly in Poland and Germany. I mean, the Poles have just been amazing throughout the war in this regard and many others. Um, so, you know, I, once again, I don't buy the whole maintenance piece. Yes, maintenance is hard, but it's hard for everything. Is it, is it fair to say then that maybe we should turn the argument around that the cost of maintenance for mothballed planes is high to the... Uh, Australian budget and we should therefore take it off their hands I, I actually don't think this is a money issue um, you know I, I one of the things about our, our military here is you know that you could never accuse them of thinking strategically but they're very good at spending money or at least wasting it so I, I don't think they they think that way they don't think in terms of strategy and they don't think of terms in, in efficiency. They just think of terms of doing things that they normally do within their normal routine. Can I, can I go a big picture here? Uh, uh, General Ryan, um, can prime minister? Yeah, I backed out my own country enough, I guess. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's great. Listen, I, but what, what, what if, what if, what if there's a lot more going on? I mean, I feel that a lot of people are mad at Western leaders, including Australian um, I think they're in it to win it. I think I think they've. I don't know. Obviously, you know what Australia gives, but even the Canadian Prime Minister showing up in Kiev and saying we're with you and we're with you until complete victory. I th I think I think that that ship has sailed. I don't think anyone's on the fence anymore. Uh, from your big picture geopolitical view, don't you, don't you feel that NATO leaders, especially EU leaders, are very much committed to Ukraine's complete victory? Uh, no, no argument with that. Absolutely no argument. I mean, I think NATO is a different institution now compared to where it was two years ago. I mean, you, it's almost light and day. And when you see countries 
you know, like like Sweden and Denmark and the Netherlands uh, and UK giving huge proportions. I mean, really not inconsequential, but huge proportions of their military munitions and equipment to the Ukrainians. Same with the Poles. Um, I mean, even, you know, Canada has provided a huge amount of equipment and munitions and, and tanks, as have the Germans. You know, you look at that and go, OK, you know, this brain-dead NATO, that it seems to have, uh, the brain seems to have been jump-started. The body's working pretty well. Um, and, you know, the US leadership uh, in there have turned it into a reasonably fine-tuned strategic machine for both uh, the physical part of war, but also the intellectual and moral parts of bringing together a coalition. Now, that doesn't mean the whole world's convinced and there's large parts of Africa, South America and South Asia who aren't on board yet. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're largely inconsequential when it comes to this. Uh, Europe has been vital and uh, I think it's very heartening to see how they've performed in the last 18 months. It's amazing. I think a lot of people are, are, are curious. So we know that there's a counteroffensive underway. We've talked about it for a long time. Some of us had great ideas of where it would start, and some might say there was only a few places they could go. But lately, Putin's been saying some weird things, you know, uh, more of that saber-rattling. <laughs> the nuke, oh, wait till we march on Kiev again. Uh, obviously delusional, but do you have fears? Um, what does he mean? Is, is Are these the death pangs, uh, throes of a madman? Um, you know... Do you, because do you think, I, I mean, someone, I heard someone say, I don't even think the counteroffensive would have to be complete before Russia completely destabilizes, like they might see it fall apart. What do you think? Yeah, I think the dude's got problems. Um, you know, at the, the end of the day, we're seeing an aging, not well autocrat whose echo chamber has been slowly but surely constricting uh, during COVID and afterwards. And you, you do have to wonder just what kind of information feeds he's getting now. I know that after the initial phase of the war, he kind of expanded his collection network uh, to the Mill Blogger network and, and these kind of things. But I, I do think there's certainly a cognitive dissonance uh, occurring in his mind. You know, he's absorbed by these historical narratives about um, a Russian empire, let's just call it that, and he doesn't seem to be able to let it go when anything that conflicts with that just kind of gets cancelled out in his mind. Um, that said, he's shown a level of pragmatism in the last 20 years, so, you know, uh, with, some, with some luck, once the last Russian soldier withdraws out of Ukraine and steps over the border, um, he can come up with some narrative to sell that to his people that doesn't involve nuclear weapons. It's amazing. Uh, Axel, did you have another question? There's a few here. Uh, there's one, the one question I think you know you were going to get, uh, and I think we've talked about it on the space ad nauseum, uh, people posting a picture of a troop. It looks like a troop, one of three or four in a battle group that seemed to have got bumped, and, uh, and Russian telegram went off the, ch went off the rails. Um, the, even the Ministry mm. of Defense said, proved this is just a small fraction of all the Ukrainian things we've destroyed, which is not true. Um, you will incur losses on the offense. Uh, how, how, how do you explain that to people who don't know about the military? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it's, it's indicative of a Russian military that's desperate for anything that looks like a success. I mean, even taking the rubble that used to be Bakhmut did not deliver them 
the great strategic coup that they thought it might. I mean, they invested tens of thousands of lives to get a pile of rubble, which they're going to find very difficult to defend without getting any real credit for it. Um, so, you know, when we see a photo of what was a single breach lane with uh, a few destroyed uh, armoured vehicles, I looked at that and went, you know, that's, that's why you always have 50% redundancy in lanes and vehicles when you are doing a breach operation. They are inherently difficult and you will lose 25 to 50% of the initial vehicles that are involved. And that's what happened in this particular lane. Um, the interesting thing to me is there's only photos of that one particular lane. And there were probably dozens of lanes across a couple of different axes advance and we're not seeing photos of those. So clearly um, they probably went much better. So, you know, this was the one that didn't go well. Uh, it happens. It happened in the 1991 Gulf War. Uh, it will happen again in the future if we've got to do these things. But, you know, the nature of winning is you have to take risks and sometimes people and uh, equipment are lost in the pursuit of that. We had this question earlier today. I think Yehuda is right to point this out, that the 47th Met uh, Brigade received a lot of flack. And as in really literally afterwards, the whole world uh, looked at this unit. But seemingly since then, as you just indicated, nothing else has occurred, but they have advanced very silently, very calmly. They seem to have learned from it, which harks back to what you, Behuda, uh, and also Ben Hodges discussed on this space, that there is significant institutional learning in the Ukrainian armed forces. They take mistakes. They analyze them, they look at them, they change things, and they move on, and then they become successful. Since then, mm. the Russians would have picked up, wouldn't they? They would have picked up on signals if there were additional losses of such kind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they keep going back to this single single one. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of think that maybe there's been a lot more success elsewhere um, that... Uh, we're not seeing, and that's fine. I don't need to see it. You know, we're working at the pace for Ukraine to save its country, not at the pace that uh, gives us nice commentary. So, uh, you know, I think in due course, we'll, we'll, there'll be more releases of, of, of information. And, uh, you know, I, there was a very interesting uh, post from Sukastasaurus. I'm not sure if you follow him on, on Substack, where it looks like... Um, the Novosilka front, um, the Ukrainians were able to penetrate down the seam between the 58th and the 35th Combined Arms Army uh, using dismounted troops. And that looks really interesting at the moment. Um, so, you know, I think the Ukrainians are slowly uh, but surely working away. These kind of big offensives start slow. That's just the nature of them when they're so big. Uh, but generally, um, they gain momentum if they're well-led. And uh, eventually we'll see some kind of breakthrough and, and then hopefully um, Basil Liddell's heart's expanding torrent. Yehuda, if you allow me, we would have two questions which we had discussed earlier with people. One is in direction of NATO. Maybe we can do this even at the end to first a, a bit of the discussions which Anders for Rasmussen has been having seemingly quite publicly in recent days. Uh, meaning that he believes that there is a need for Ukraine to be admitted to NATO and being provided security guarantees, proper security guarantees, similar to what Sweden and Finland enjoyed in the transition period. Uh, and that, that he believes that this mark, this, this specific target should be achieved quickly as uh, 
otherwise Europe does not really have a defense posture because it fails to make orders for replacement or for future equipment. How do you see this? Is that a necessity which should be cleared at Vilnius or um, what's the take on this? Yeah, I think Vilnius has to provide a clear signal of where NATO is going with this. Um, I think Jen Stoltenberg has been very clear on this. Uh, certainly Zelensky in his speech a couple of weeks ago, he said, well, why are we going to Vilnius if there isn't some kind of um, statement on the direction of our membership? Um, so, you know, I, I understand Ukrainian membership of NATO has been pondered and considered and argued for 30 years. But um, if now, if not now, when? Um, and I think that's Zelensky's essential point. You know, if, if not now, when? And if not now, uh, do we need to look for alternatives uh, to guarantee our security in the future? So, you know, I think Vilnius is a really, really important um, get-together uh, for lots of reasons, but in particular, the future of Ukraine in NATO is vital. Can we, can and it has to be has to be part of victory, right? Is their long term security guarantees? For sure, most people look at Ukraine now and they're saying that when Ukraine is ready to go uh, and liberates its country, it will it will you know defend itself. It will uh, turn into a, a fortress, Ukraine. Um, we get that, uh, but I did want to ask a question a little more tactical. Hold on one second, um, Axel, the mic, please. It's actually uh, generalized. Yeah, if you can mute it for me while I talk. Thanks. Um, thank you. Uh, so people are asking uh, tactical questions. I don't know if you want to get into it, but it would be really interesting to hear from you. Um, so let's, you know, it's not, it's not, it's well known. The uh, the uh, e Ukrainians have about four or five areas um, that they're fighting on, let's say. And speaking in layman's terms, we do know that the Ukrainians have advanced 25 kilometers in one way. Someone asked an interesting question. Could it be possible to conduct an, an offensive, an attack, um, a break in or penetration, use it as a feint to pull Russian forces into that area and then actually put your main effort somewhere else? I don't know. I'm not asking you to speculate what's going on, but is that a thing doctrinally? Or do you, once you commit to that exploitation or the, if you commit to the break in and penetration, are you, are you married to that? If that's something you could address. Here, Mike's muted. Oh, sorry. So I think once, you know, as Ukrainians have shown so far in this war, they've been pretty good at misdirection uh, and deception. You know, there's there's no reason why, uh, if an opportunity presents, they can't exploit that, and they should. But, you know, Ukraine's a pretty big place, and a single breakthrough isn't, you know, a single penetration isn't going to liberate the entirety of their country. So, you know, I think there's the the potential for them to seek... Uh, tactical and operational uh, penetration and breakthrough in a couple of different areas, if not concurrently, potentially consecutively, uh, in order to, you know, collapse the schemes of defence, which, remember, are being run by different Russian military districts. Um, you know, there's three Russian military districts that are, are running defensive campaigns under Gerasimov at the moment. Um, so, you know, I think what uh, that question asked is is a realistic proposition. It will be taking place over weeks and months, not hours and days, though. All right. So, there, and more to that point. So, when people are talking about the advances 
in Bakhmut area, that looked a little odd because I thought, well, you know, is this more of a, you know, misdirection, convince the Russians to throw more personnel into uh, Bakhmut to keep it because they're so obsessed with it whilst attacking in other areas. So is it kind of a, you know, would it be a, fa- you know, like a fixing operation? Like, why are they pushing so hard at Bakhmut right now where the natural, um, you know, intuitively it would look like you want to go from Zaporizhia to Melitopol or the Black Sea. Is that part of this misdirection perhaps? Or would you think that there would be an Eastern push uh, through the Donbass? I personally wouldn't. I think that would not be the easiest thing to do. But again, not a general. And that's why you're here. Uh, I think your mic is muted. Yeah, I think I think it could be both. At the end of the day, um, you know, the Ukrainians want to play with the Russians' minds. They want the Russians to be confused about where the next hammer blow might fall. And, you know, there, there could be a third axis somewhere else that the Ukrainians are thinking about whilst they draw the Russians to these two. So, you know, I, I can see lots of different permutations here, uh, lots of ways where they might confuse the Russians. Uh, and at the end of the day, remember that the early parts of an offensive are all about prodding the Russians to do things and to unveil capabilities or units or headquarters that the Ukrainians haven't yet found so they can be subject to to long-range strike. Um, So, you know, I think we're seeing very, very early days here. I think there's a deeper operational design that the Ukrainians have developed and wargamed probably with the Americans over the last six months. And we're we're seeing um, really just... Uh, the first couple of pieces of the first act in the, in the larger part of a three-act show. All right. So last question from the audience, and we're going to go to some hands. So here, um, we, we you know, the old adage, if you deny the terrain to your enemy, you deny it to yourself. The Russians, everyone is pretty confident of actually uh, destroyed the Novokovka Dam, obviously to create panic, fear, terror, commit a war crime, all that jazz. But it also means that it makes it untenable to cross and land, you know, an 800-meter river in some points is now, you know, three kilometers because of the, the water levels. But, and even after the water recedes or subsides, the terrain might not support, the bridges here and there might not support all that armor. So is it, besides, uh, the question isn't did the Russians blow the dam, but the question is, how effect like what is the effect on on the counteroffensive? Does this mean that all of the force multipliers that were sat outside Kherson, all the artillery, all the engineering assets, can now be directed over to Zaporizhia, so the Ukrainians can concentrate forces and concentrate fires on Russian positions, or do they leave those there, right? And, and for whatever reason, maybe the Russians try to counter move. Um, but it, has the Russian att- attempt at this war crime to destroy the dam? to deny the Ukrainians the terrain on the eastern bank of the Dnipro, has that backfired on them? Because uh, are they are the Ukrainians not going to move all their counter-battery, their artillery, their engineering assets from Kherson over to other places? Sorry, it's again... So I think you just... I think you've just described the one of the key dilemmas that Grasimov and his subordinate commanders possess at the moment, you know? Um, is that going to be a viable axis of advance for the Ukrainians? at some point in the near future, not in the next couple of weeks, but maybe in the next month or two. Um, And how does he uh, protect that, you know, Western flank against some kind of Ukrainian operation? Or does he write it off as a non-viable axis? Um, And, you know, uh, they've already redeployed some forces out of there, but I find it difficult 
to credit that they would leave that western flank entirely unguarded. So you're going to see some kind of, I think, at minimum, a flank security mission out there. But my sense is probably be a bit more than that because um, Kherson is one of the entry points into Crimea and they absolutely have to defend that in depth. So we may see some redeployment of forces, but I can't see them leaving it entirely uncovered at this point. So if you were that commander uh, in Kherson, you you wouldn't be calling up higher and saying, well, I don't need the artillery, just send it away. You're going to obviously keep most of it. Yeah, no, I'd be I'd be keeping it um, because remember, war's just not not just about what we can predict. It's also very unpredictable, and um, as Ukrainians have demonstrated, they've been quite unpredictable at times. And uh, if the Russians have got half a brain, which some of them actually do, as even uh, General Zeluzhny has acknowledged publicly, you need to do um, the kind of prudent planning against uh, a Ukrainian thrust through Kherson. Uh, fair enough. Uh, anything from the co-host? And then if not, we'll go to Will. Yeah, I would have added one thing about line charges, but we can defer that because it's tactical, so it's not as relevant at the moment. We had a discussion earlier today with uh, Thomas Tyner about uh, the Ukrainian army perfecting the combination of their new combined arms without air power, meaning that they're using counter-battery radars from the West, extremely versatile, layered artillery, and uh, therefore, by means of drone scouting, enable themselves to take out the Russians. It's unique that we see a force-on-force conflict without air power, proper air power. How do you rate their performance? Um, sorry, who, whose performance am I rating again? I just missed that the, last bit. The performance out. of the Ukrainian army, given the fact that they don't have sufficient close air support, they can't yeah. actually achieve air superiority, and still they're advancing, still they're going for the counteroffensive, and they are replacing things with essentially a different form of power, yeah. meaning artillery and scouts. Yeah, no, I, I think you know this is the first time that I can recall that a Western military institution, and I would term the Ukrainians a Western military institution now, um, has tried to do these large-scale ground force operations without having air superiority. I mean, if we have a look at World War II, you know, (laughs) everything in Western Europe was done under the cover of uh, air superiority. If we have a look at uh, 1991 and 2003 in Iraq, that was done under air superiority. So was Afghanistan. So... This is a, a a variation of how Western militaries want to work. Uh, it's done out of necessity. Uh, but, you know, I think it also offers a model to uh, lots of other countries who aren't the US and who can't guarantee um, air superiority. Now, I think also the Chinese will be looking at this going, oh, it is possible to do things if we don't own the skies. Um, so we should be thinking about not just what we can take away from what the Ukrainians are doing, but what might potential adversaries take away from how you operate in an environment where you don't possess uh, control of the skies. So I, I think there's some really interesting and useful insights. You know, we'll, we'll need lots of assessment and, and analysis, of course, but uh, some good insights that, that will emerge from how the Ukrainians have actually operated uh, during this this 2023 offensive. 
Yura, if you have no further questions, uh, we have uh, a friend from Perth who has a question for the general. But don't 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 mistake his accent. He's from the far far northwest of Perth. <laughs> Go ahead, Will. Good day, Mick. Uh, uh, sorry, these these books always give me a hard time because I grew up in America, <clears throat> which you won't hold against me. I'm sure. Which is very which is very north northwest of Perth, if you think about it, or north northeast. It's very. Very, very, very. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I, I have two questions, but I'll I'll, I'll save one for later. Uh, it, it concerns your your book. Uh, the the um, the first question I've got is is look, we've been using your information and others for the past year uh, in, in this space to uh, try to uh, berate our government uh, to uh, provide the appropriate level of support. Uh, or continue to provide that support, and uh, basically tried to get it into a nice tight message of the F-18s, uh, the Bushmasters and the Hawkeyes, and uh, some of our M1A1 Abrams tanks, which are due to be replaced. We already know that the yep. we already know that the F-18s are uh, totally surplus, uh, are costing us tens of millions of dollars to maintain and store. And should go. And, and then there was this talk about, oh, you know, but they're not airworthy. So General Dynamics has done a report, said they they could have them ready to go within six months. Um, so I think probably, I don't know, I'm, I'm just guessing that the F-18s might might be broken and those might be provided in in, in the July 17th announcement. Um, and uh, I hope that they he also takes the advice of Reznikov and all the folks who have used Bushmasters and and get that line running three shifts a day um but in relation to the m1a1 tanks you have said in in the past um that we could easily provide about half of that contingent that we've currently got on hand now in australia uh so something like to the tune of uh two companies of those tanks for uh, 28 of those tanks could be reasonably provided to ukraine without significantly deterring any defense capability that we have here, we need here in the short term to cover our needs. Um, it, it, do you still think that is correct? Do you still think those three items are, are probably the priorities that we can, should keep banging on about to our representatives? Um, or is there anything else? And is there other people we ought to be talking to here in Australia? Because I continually direct people to, of course, Richard Marles, uh, Anthony Albanese and their local representative to get their voice heard. Yeah, firstly, um, I stand by the fact that, you know, we could give a squadron of tanks without uh, a big impact on capability here. I've been a brigade commander. I know I know the impact. Um, at the end of the day, the Ukrainians have an existential threat. We do not. Um, but, you know, as I've written, there is a range of other things that we could provide if we just use a little bit of bloody imagination. And that is something that um, clearly our Department of Defence lacks. There is absolutely no creativity in that institution. It's full of hand ringers and committee people, um, not innovators and leaders or risk takers. Um, so if it not tanks, you know, send another 100 or 50 Bushmasters um, if not military equipment, send $200 million into uh, the NATO and the EU funds that are there to procure munitions and equipment. I mean, you know, just even the slightest bit of lateral thinking from the Australian government would be welcome at this stage uh, because we've seen absolutely zero 
of that throughout the course of this war. So, yeah, you know, I'm you know I talk to a lot of folks and and you know people who are lobbying the government for these things, and they're just having doors slammed in their faces. So this is a government that fundamentally doesn't care about Ukraine. It's a government that fundamentally doesn't see any votes in it. And notwithstanding any future announcement and why it has to be delayed another month, I have no clue. Um, I don't see this government uh, fundamentally shifting its position on Ukraine at this point because it's more concerned with domestic rather than foreign issues at the moment. So it's one of those things. Will needs to start writing letters to his MP and Ukraine, Ukrainians, Australians, might as well be Ukrainians, we're all fighting the same fight, need to contact mm. their elected representatives, their members of parliament, and all of them. Um, that works. Trust us. We get the report. We get the feedback from people all over the United States and Canada and the UK. They send letters. They show up at constituency offices. They bring placards. We need more of it. Look, um, I was surprised. Um, you know, I looked at... Uh, uh, I watch, I watch the news on things that are sent to Ukraine by especially Canada and Australia and the UK. A lot of really good feedback about the Bushmaster. That's what I've been hearing from, from Ukrainians. Uh, have you heard this? What do you think? Yeah, I, I actually, um, I'm really not uh, surprised. These are excellent vehicles. I mean, they're not cheap, but they are excellent. We lost over 100 of them in Afghanistan. Um, and didn't have a single fatality in any of those incidents. Uh, now, different threat. You're not talking about taking 30 mil or, or, or main tank rounds, uh, but still they're an extraordinarily capable vehicle. Uh, but importantly, they're very, very easy to train people in, in very, very easy to maintain. It's just basically Caterpillar parts. Um, so, you know, they're, they're an excellent vehicle for their role, which is uh, protected mobility. They're not IFVs. Um, and, you know, it, it makes me feel good that an Australian vehicle is helping to protect Ukrainian lives. I just wish we could send more of them. Well, hopefully you do. Will's going to write some letters and Will wanted to follow up. Oh, they're sick of hearing from me already. Uh, I'm sure. Uh, but I mean, that's so that. So are you, you're saying basically it is correct to just keep I mean, even even if it doesn't work, Vic, we're going to keep doing it. Right. And I'm going to encourage people to keep doing it to their representative uh, about those three things. Right. Because they're the three things that I think in this operating in this environment in Australia where. You know, they're fighting uh, all this stuff you say on, on, on domestic issues, cost of living, why aren't we doing enough for housing, all the things, you know, the attacks they're getting from the Greens and the independents. Um, but it's very, it would be phenomenally cost effective to send the F-18s, since we're just paying for maintenance and storage of them. Uh, the Bushmasters is something that we could produce, just turn the, turn the dial up on the machine so that we're making more of those three ships a day. And that really wouldn't cost us much in an environment where both Queensland, per West Australia, and the federal government are all in budget surplus. I mean, we can, we can do this all now. And, 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 and the other thing is, doing those things in Bendigo isn't going to be inflationary because all, your, your, all the product is going overseas. It's not going to get spit bought here. And those are good-paying jobs in regional Victoria. I just, I mean, so mm -hmm. if the message is good, who else should we be? Who, who else might we be spamming it to to get it to into the into the the, uh, the Department of Defense and uh, 
anyone else who, who would have uh, sway over uh, the decision makers. Yeah, I, I think the other thing to remember too is Australia has made a, a lot of additional money from grain exports since the beginning of this war and stands to make a lot more because of the profound impact um, the dam uh, destruction will have on Ukrainian agriculture. So I think there's an added uh, impetus there for Australia to help Ukraine as well. Especially since we yeah. have two years of record harvest in the hoppers here in West Australia. We have had two record years of harvest. We've got more than 24 million bushels of, of, of wheat put up from the last couple of years. And so does America at this time, mm. by the way, luckily. And Canada. All right, let's go with David, and then we're going to go to Maple Chaos, Canadian person. Let's go with David and Maple. Uh, uh, hello there, General Ryan. Thanks, yeah. Thank you very much. You directed my the dam. Uh, David, you can hardly hear you're, you're a little weak. No, am I? Oh, yeah, I will. <laughs> Rarely has anyone ever called my voice weak. But yes, hello, dear General Ryan. Uh, thank you very much. You directed my question a little bit. I don't want to talk about uh, her son because it, the, the war crime is uh, clear. Uh, what I'd like to talk about is what's <laughs> going through their minds with the... It Maybe it was five and it's possibly six more dams that they've uh, they've decided to blow, right? Uh, what uh, is it? Is that just a... More scorched earth, or is it, or is there some sound tactical part to it? Uh, I think there's a couple of pieces to this. I think you know the Russians looked at what the Ukrainians did at the beginning of the war and the impact of uh, flooding areas. So that demonstrates a, some kind of rat cunning learning, as much as we don't like it. Um, also, I think that there is a bit of a scorched earth mentality there now. Um, I think even if they don't want to publicly recognise it, um, a lot of Russian commanders have probably accepted that this is the long-term trend isn't good for them. Um, and, you know, this is a pretty brutal organisation. Um, and if, if they're not going to win, they're happy to uh, destroy their way out of the country. So I think it's probably a combination of both. Um, and, you know, I think it's also pretty clear that they didn't coordinate their uh, destruction of the dam very well with their own forces, and a lot of Russian troops were killed because of it. So I've got a follow-up to that then. Uh, if we assume that if we're saying it's scorched earth, then uh, by definition we might saying that they've accepted that they're going to lose that area completely and they'll be moved out. Possibly. I hope so. Um, I hope they're moved out of all areas of Ukraine would be my hope. Well, it's also uh, true that two and a half months ago, the Russians did withdraw many, many of their forces from uh, the east bank of the Dnipro, including their civilian administration. I think they saw the, run, the writing on the wall, perhaps, there. Um, and I think that besides denying the terrain to their enemy, the Ukrainians, the good guys, I think they also wanted to damage and hurt Ukraine. As you said, a, a, a mixture of both. 50-50. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I've got time for about one more question, guys, and then I need to uh, head off Fair enough. Okay. Uh, to another appointment. We've got Maple, Maple Chaos. Thank you. Hi, sir. Uh, big fan of yours. Working my way through War Transformed right now. Uh, Thank just you. A, just a quick question. Uh, with the 35th uh, Combined Arms Army Headquarters strike there at, on the Airbot spit, um, what's your understanding of Russian command structure and what an impact would have on a strike like that because it's my understanding that 
their air ops are coordinated at the at the at the CAA level. Uh, is there logistics done that way too? And you know, can can Ukraine sort of benefit from um, sort of command disruption? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know when you hit a headquarters like that, particularly in the Russian construct where they're more centralised, it's going to have an impact. Um, you know, clearly the major general who was killed was a pretty senior guy. Uh, this is this attack I was talking about that Sikastasaurus had, had described, the attack down the, the join in the map between two combined arms armies. So, you know, it will have an impact. I mean, any time you hit a headquarters, you're going to have an impact on uh, things like the coordination of fires, coordination of logistics, coordination of uh, just traffic and, and, and reinforcements. How long that will last? Well, you know, if you've been in the military, you know that you know, for 24 or 48 hours, things will be uncomfortable and then you just adapt around it. So the Russians have probably already adapted around that strike. I mean, you never have a headquarters, you, you know, you know, you have a tack, a forward and a main uh, for these kind of reasons. So I, I'd suggest that uh, it would have had an impact. It would have created shock in the first 12 to 24 hours. But uh, as we do with headquarters, they've probably adapted around it already. Thank you. All right, General Ryan, uh, we got Plamen one fast one. Is that okay? Yeah, one fast one's great. Plamen, over to you. Sweet and short. <clears throat> Thank you, Ehuda. Um, General, it's uh, really a privilege to have you on the space. Uh, a very quick question on the um, on your view of the Russian propaganda, because we, we spoke about uh, on the space about governments being reluctant to provide help and people being uncertain and so forth and so on. And, and obviously, some of that is, is based on, on on the actions of the Russian propaganda. How would you rate uh, the effectivity of the Russian propaganda in Australia right now? Do you think there is an impact of their actions on the government and the population view of the war? Uh, and do you think there are enough measures taken to counter this propaganda? Uh, and this is a hostile act. Uh, this this is a, a, an act of war. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I don't think there's any great support for Russia in this country. There's a couple of weirdos and uh, social misfits who parade around with all kinds of right-wing uh, paraphernalia from Nazi to to Russian, and, and they're just, you know, just repulsive humans and, and don't get a lot of cut through. I think it's the kind of ideas that you see around, you know, NATO should be expanded further and these kind of things. You do see in some of the narratives or, you know, it's a long way away, it's not our problem. Uh, that's where you, you have uh, concerns, I think, and I've, I've perceived some of that in the public debate. Uh, there was even, you know, there's even been op-eds in papers to that end. But I think largely um, Australians support Ukraine, uh, but, it, you know, it's not in the top three priorities they think about on a daily basis. Thank you, General. All right. Well, thank you, General Ryan. I know you got to go, and we appreciate every moment you spend with us. Just so everyone knows, uh, please do check out General Ryan's uh, page there, his Twitter account. He's a strategist, a leader, author, retired uh, Major General from the Australian Army. And uh, you can check out his Substack. And he's got a bunch of books, and it's well worth the read. Do check out General Ryan, please. 
Thank you very much, sir, for being here. We're at Maria Report. We've been here 24 hours a day, seven days a week before the invasion of 2022 started, and we will continue to be here. And if you want to help out, go to mariareport.org. We are raising funds for the mayor of Kherson City and other um, noble Ukrainian causes. We thank you for your support. General, we, we are at about almost $50,000 in the last 15 hours, uh, sorry, correction, 20 hours raised to help Ukraine. And um, and a lot of it has to do with great people like you who show up here and support the platform. Thank you very much, sir, and have a great day. Yeah, you too. It's great to be with you again. All the best to you. Thank you very much. We shall be glad to see you back soon. And there we are. Thanks. Thank, please do give if you're not following General Ryan, uh, you're 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 missing out. Give him a follow. Uh, great leader, uh, great uh, human being, frankly. Uh, he's on the right side of history. He doesn't have to be here. He could be off in Marbella like Nick, uh, sipping a, a Mai Tai or whatever it's called. Um, but what he's doing is he's using his platform and his knowledge to promote the defense and the democracy and freedom of another country. Um, so there's nothing more honorable than that, is there, Axel? Yeah. Well, we are, By the way, if I may say, you, not only are we very lucky, but we have this community of people who are interested in supporting Ukraine and who are interested in dissecting information and working what is essentially in information warfare as well as information awareness, but who are really committed to supporting Ukraine when it needs that support most. I am so stunned by the outpouring of support and love and um, engagement in the last, yeah, 24 hours. Um, it is, yeah, awesome, as you would call it over there, you know, across the pond. <laughs> but the good thing is we have something else awesome coming up, and that is Chuck, who should be with us in just about a second. And uh, so people, don't run away, don't go away. There's something extremely interesting coming up. Why? Chuck Ferrer has his bullet points. Chuck Ferrer and bullet points. All right, I could dig that. Um, look, uh, on the... Listen, on the back of a great fundraiser uh, and the great information that we're getting from so many different sources, please do retweet the space. Let people know you're here. Remember, you can support uh, a multitude of really good organizations in Ukraine by donating to MariaReport.org. Five dollars helps. Trust me. Uh, occasionally, we get people who are professional philanthropists who double the amount that you send and sometimes triple. So if you could keep giving, that's really important. Um, with the funds that are going to be uh, sent out, uh, Harrison City will be buying many, many generators that will support what they call invincibility points, areas where citizens can get water supplies, electricity, and uh, live their lives and survive Russian genocide. So you're helping to stop a genocide by supporting. Um, you get a 5013C a tax receipt if, it, if you're in the United States. Apparently some other jurisdictions honor that tax credit i can't speak to it because i'm not an accountant so please do ask uh, your accountant in your jurisdiction uh we're here to support ukraine and advocate we do it every day all day for the last 15 months and we're not going to stop because we're dedicated we believe in the cause of freedom we believe that ukraine has a right to live in its own boundaries unmolested protected and flourishing so thank you very much to the team of the panel and to general mick ryan um, he takes his time to spend with, with us when he has a, 
Thanks so much. And uh, Axel, I think there are a bunch of hands and I don't want to interfere.